So here's a little known secret about your brother that a great many of you probably have no clue about. I have an abiding and deep addiction to the complicated. (laughs) I know, I know, it's a shock. (laughs) Chris is back there like, don't start. (laughs) It's rare for me to be caught thinking deeply about the circumstances we find ourselves in, right? And even rarer for me, and you can ask Shorty this one, for me to be overthinking my responses for days and weeks and months later and how I could have done it better. In fact, I'm still looking for another opportunity to redo the sermon from last July because I got some things not quite right. (laughs) Yet even with that need to probe the depths of life's unknown unknowns, I genuinely do find enjoyment in the simplest things. Even as my brain ponders the fringes of human epistemological pursuits, and my soul attempts to unravel the very fabric of the existence we find ourselves in. Nothing helps to anchor me to this life like the basics. The smell of a pot of coffee brewing, a good deep laugh with the loved ones when you're roasting each other, the light of our house, the sight of the church down the street. Listen to this t- the simple timing beat on the drums. But I confess, for me personally, fam, there is nothing quite like the intersection of the simple and the complex. It sets my entire existence aflame. It's kind of like that delicate dance of grabbing fresh-baked chocolate chip cookies right out the oven when they're still sizzling hot. (laughs) Because if you can manage to avoid the third-degree burns of the pan (laughs) or burning that layer of skin off your tongue, that is bliss, isn't it? (laughs) So imagine my shock and bliss as I prepared for today and stumbled across the complex history of this simple little song that I refused to sing, (laughs) on the mic anyway. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. We know this song. Like, you can't go anywhere in the United States and have had any exposure to church and not at least sing that song once, right? Some of y'all are thinking about your church camp when you did it. Some of y'all are thinking about the choir chorus when you did it. But we all know that song. But here's the funny thing about digging into that. Is that one of the complexity comes into play when the origins of that song are examined. Because even though the talented Moody music teacher Harry Dixon Lowe's is cited as the earliest documented use of the song when he included it in one of their hymnals and later arranged one of the first sophisticated renditions of it, Moody research tells us that he never once claimed to have written it. And there's this idea that it's an old Negro spiritual given birth in modern times, and yet there's no meaningful evidence to support that claim either. Yet despite its unknown origins, its impact on our society, and not merely Christian society, cannot be understated. During the U.S. civil rights era of the 60s and 50s, the song took on a powerful metamorphosis as it became known as one of the freedom songs, where the likes of Fannie Lou Hamer, Sophia Horton, and Betty Mae Fikes used its simplicity to embolden courage and quell fears as protesters spoke truth to the guardians of the oppressive power structure of their day. And even though it's passed through the vocal cords of the likes of Sister Rosetta Tharp, 
Sam Cooke, you parents know Rafi, Wren Collective, LZ7, with variations from nearly every mainline genre of music, it has continued to resonate with the simple complexity of freedom even into our modern era. As a former Billboard gospel music editor turned Baylor educator, Professor Robert Darden told NPR in their examination, as some of the survivors of the civil rights movement as I have, survivors who sang these songs for protection and for courage, why this little light of mine survives and is still sung in the Me Too movements and women's movements of today. He says, they look me straight in the eye and they say, it's because those songs are anointed. And as, I, and as an academic, I have no way to refute that, nor do I want to. So it turns out that no matter how far you dig, no one really knows the origins of that song. But it continues to echo an eternal truth birthed when the creator first sang into our existence. So if you indulge your simple and complex brother for just a few minutes, I believe I have a solid theory to the origin stories of this song. And it starts with us examining the simple complexity of the text but we're not going to Matthew. Let's start in John. <laughs> if we're to come to any kind of meaningful understanding about the great mysteries of our existence and of, of its creator, then it's vitally important to understand the context of the data which we're consuming. That is the basis of how we form our decisions. This is relevant to John's gospel because it's a stark departure from what the theologians call the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Synoptic is just a school word that means summarizing, but you know complicated people and the simple things. <laughs> In contrast, John's gospel is an extremely personal perspective of his front row seat to act two of the redemption story, with many events not seen in other gospels. Whether John developed this unique perspective during his time walking with the master on the, on the, on the shores of the Middle East, or he developed it in reflection afterwards, John comes up with some things that spark intense scholarly discussions. While there's a number of reasons for this, what I believe to be today's most important takeaway from this distinction is that the apostles' extremely close proximity to the master and its deeply contemplated meaning after he had departed shaped his writing, all of his writing. Consider how he closes the Gospel of John. There are many more things that Jesus did if all of them were written down, I suppose that not even the world itself would have space for the books that could be written. See, Paul had, or Paul, John had this perspective that was different and unique. And so the scholars, they talk about it, and they compare it against the other Gospels, and they constantly go back and forth, and their ideas that somehow or another, this simple fisherman could not come to the complexity of these writings on his own. But so overwhelmed was John by all he recounted of his master that the apostle seems to just drop the mic in sheer exhaustion in this verse. It's as though no more words are left to be found. And it's this unique perspective that is apparent throughout all of his writings. But if we look, we see it from the start. This is how he opens the book. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. That is bars. <laughs> now, obviously, I wasn't there when John pins these words. But the depths of his love for the Master are pretty undeniable. In fact, before he even states the Master's name in verse 17 of chapter 1, John goes through and poetically calls him the word four times, the light four times, declares that life is found only in him, and even lays out the entirety of the gospel message in the first 13 verses of the book. He could have literally walked away after writing 13 verses and said, I'm done. <laughs> and then from there, he still doesn't mention the master's name because he goes on to share John the Baptist's testimony about the Savior, calling him the Lamb of Yahweh, and thus linking him directly to the writings of the supporting cast member of our ongoing Sunday morning series, Chosen Moses. <laughs> and it's pulling on this thread, this simple little thread that John kicks off, that we're taking on a trip through space-time itself as he encourages the reader to recognize that Yeshua's arrival on this planet is not happenstance. But it is the deliberate action of Yahweh, the physical manifestation of him satisfying the promise of all creation that we've all been waiting for, that we're still waiting on the full manifestation of when Adam and Eve took fruit in the garden and betrayed the creator. And he set it all in motion with these words. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. No, fam, no questions this time when the, when the creator speaks, just a promise, just a promise, just a promise. And somehow John saw this. But as PD reminds us, the one who created time is not bound by the constraints of it. And so generations pass from that moment before we see any meaningful movement towards the promise. And fam, when we finally do see it, this flicker of hope on the horizon, Yahweh chooses a couple that makes no discernible human sense. Abram and Sarah. Good Lord have mercy. If he can use them, then I know he can use me. <laughs> now, I'm not going to start with their story, but if you ain't read it, or you ain't read it recently, you really should, because them two is most definitely the children of Adam and Eve. <laughs> but it's cool, because so are the rest of us. Now, here's an Easter egg from the source material that's coming in season 32 of Chosen Moses. Now, I'm not going to spoil it, Chris. <laughs> but Moses has to remind God of his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your very self when you declared, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land that I have promised, and it shall be their inheritance forever. But what Moses is referring to isn't even that, and John recognizes this somehow. He digs through this deeper because he goes back to when God first made this promise to him. And this is on the mountain of God where, where Yahweh had called Moses to sacrifice Isaac. And he says, sorry, called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And he says to him, as the older is getting ready to plunge the knife into the younger to stop, and the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time, saying, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, declares Yahweh. 
that because you have done this, you have not withheld your only son, I will surely bless you and I will multiply your descendants like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will possess the gates of their enemy and through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. (laughs) But John keeps pulling on the thread. Or I did, one of us did. Because even though he's respecting his nation and his elders, like the Synoptic Gospels does, John sees something that goes further back, and he steps into the very beginning of our existence when darkness reigned over the face of the deep. And this is where we catch a glimpse of what it was that John caught a glimpse of that drove his entire life. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. (laughs) Hebrews simplifies it even further by saying, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. And John caught that. He had this understanding that somehow or another, when, when the, John the Baptist goes, here's the Lamb of God, John saw something. And just to double down and make sure that we understand his opening lines about the word and the beginning of time, he goes back in and he says, the true light who gives light to every man, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of blood, not born of desire, (laughs) not born of the will of man, born of God. And this is what John sees. Because far on the other side of Israel becoming a sovereign nation, far on the other side of the perpetual cycles, their perpetual cycles and mine too, of obedience, complacency, disobedience, punishment, repentance, and restoration, only to go through it again, far on the other side of their exile and oppression, John watches the promise in action and comes to the conclusion that Yeshua himself is the very light of creation. How did the simple fisherman see something so complex? Because he doesn't come to this understanding on his own. And without having the monthly benefit of G4, (laughs) he uses what Dr. Eric Mason refers to as the components of good deconstruction to come to his understanding. He uses the Torah, our Bible, at least the first half of our Bible. He uses history, again, from the Torah itself, but also citing the oral and written traditions of the Jewish people. And he uses his experience primarily walking with the light on earth to come to this conclusion. And it's from that combination that John's perspective was formed and fully cemented, particularly from his front row vantage point of the encounters of Jesus. Now, we're not going to redo the entire 2021 Bible study that we did. I could, but we're not. But here are a few key moments that the Spirit of the Most High uses to confirm John's suspicions about Yeshua. 
In John 3, when the Pharisee Nicodemus secretly visits, visits Jesus, the master makes this declaration. And this is the verdict. The light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. John 3, 19. In chapter 8, when he opens the section by clothing one of our sisters in dignity, mercy, and forgiveness, when the crowd was raging for her, for her assassination, he ends it in that same passage by letting the, the religious elite who argued with him about it that he was in fact Yahweh before Abraham ever was a twinkle. He says, once again, Jesus spoke to the people and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never be in darkness, but will have the light of life. Similarly, in chapter 9, which centers on the miraculous work of him healing a blind man from birth and wrestling with the same religious elite over the miracle, the master again makes this declaration. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sin, but this happened so that the works of God would be displayed in him. While it is daytime, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am the world. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. See, somewhere in this journey, the Apostle John became fully and completely persuaded and wholly in pursuit of the light of the world to the exclusion of all else. And it's that clear understanding that drove his life so much so that while the other disciples fled for their lives at the crucifixion, John was present for the trial. He was present for the punishment. He was present for the brutal walk to Golgotha and the actual sacrifice of Jesus by the creator of the universe. John was there. But as I was reading through this, something struck me. Something simple is missing from his recollection of the crucifixion. And this is where it gets complicated. <laughs> Note how all three of the synoptic gospels record the darkness that fell on the land during Christ's crucifixion. Almost word for word, they mirror one another. Matthew says from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the land. Mark says the same thing. Luke, you know, because he was the analytical type, was like it was now about the sixth hour because you had to be precise about it. And darkness came over the land until the ninth hour. And then he goes on further to talk about how that darkness and the veil was torn. So, you know, Luke was, Luke was detailing some things. But not John. And as I flip back and forth through the text, and I'm looking at these things, and I'm going, well, why not, John? Why not? I mean, you spent... What scholars have broken down into 18 chapters, establishing your thesis that Yeshua is the light of the world and that he was sent specifically to redeem it from the spiritual darkness covering it. And here is the perfect temporal event, literal darkness covering the land to support your thesis and you don't even mention it. Come on, John, that's a fail. You're writing it. You just start off by telling us that he's the word in the beginning and there's light. And then he came to redeem us from darkness. And now darkness falls across the land at the crucifixion. And he doesn't mention it? And now all of a sudden I'm with the scholars like, maybe he didn't write this book. But as I wrestled with the text regarding my questions and read and prayed and reread and reprayed and searched the Greek and searched the Hebrew, I believe that same spirit that ministered understanding to John hit me with a glimpse of what it was that sustained the apostle. Because you see, it wasn't merely his close proximity to the master, that literal and figurative leaning back against Yeshua's chest. But from John's call to follow, 
through the personal encounters and miracles he recorded, through the assignment to care for the master's earthly mother, through the crucifixion, the burial, through the resurrection and the subsequent appearances, through the restoration of Peter, through the prophecy that John would see the Christ return before his death, through the ascension, through the day of Pentecost, through his life's ministry, through the writing of the epistles, all the way through to his exile in the Patmos, through the literal recording of the revelations of Christ, John lived the entirety of his existence in the light of the world. That's where he lived. And I suspect that through the varying periods of darkness in his life, both figurative and literal, John was so completely unfazed by the darkness because he was abiding in the light of the world. Simply stated, when all the land had experienced darkness and everyone was looking around trying to figure out what was going on, John's singular focus was so locked onto the light of the world that like the children of Israel in Egypt during their exodus, he didn't even experience the darkness. That's what the light of the world does for us. That's the power of the light of the world. That was his focus. That's what drove him. That's how he saw the world. So that when darkness fell, he's looking at Jesus on the cross and it's still lit around him. Fam, I want to live that kind of lit. That the darkness itself can encroach upon my life and I am unfazed by it because I see the light of the creator of the universe expressed through Jesus Christ, the man, now minister to me by the Holy Spirit and it leaves me in a place where I am unfazed by the darkness around me. That's the kind of life I want to live. <laughs> but we're not done yet. Each and every encounter with the light of the world alters a person in some way. Even if they reject the opportunity to move into the light, they are altered by it, make no mistake. And this isn't just restricted to when Jesus was walking the planet in human form. Check out just a couple of these encounters from across space-time. All right, Chris, I'm going to spoil season 33 of Chosen Moses. Moses ends up spending so much time with the creator that the children of Israel are like, yo, we can't even look on your face anymore, bro. <laughs> Saul on his way to wreck shop in the name of Yahweh himself, certified in his belief that the scriptures gave him permission to massacre Christians, encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus and is blind for three days. And even John, the apostle who spent his life in the light, even John, the one who leaned back against Christ Jesus, the one who saw him transfigured, speaking with chosen Moses and Elijah, looked upon the risen Christ in his glory on the Isle of Patmos. And here's what some scholars say about him passing out, that he actually died. That it wasn't that he just passed out as if dead, but that he actually died, and that's what allowed him to see beyond the world that he was in. And like every single other person the gospel records encountering the master, like every single other person the Bible records encountering the creator, John was so irrevocably altered by encountering the light of the world that it was this lens, along with love, that affected every one of his writings. They couldn't be separated from his perspective. And no matter how much he looked, all he saw was the light of the world who came into the world for love's sake. 
And long before his exile, long before anybody else had grasped it, long before the penning of his epistles, long before the penning of the revelation, long before the penning of of the gospel, this is what John had grasped, and this is what the Spirit whispered. He had grasped the most complex seven simple words of Jesus' entire ministry. You are the light of the world. Worship team is coming back. Once again, Jesus is speaking these words from our text today in Matthew 5, 14. And he's opening this eternal shortcut between what we are and what we used to be. He comes on the scene in what our church ancestors and the theologian, the complicated ones, that they call the Sermon on the Mount. And he declares to you and I who climb the mountain in pursuit of him, just like John, that we are in fact the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city on the hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they set it on a stand and and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do you see it now, fam? Do you see what it was that John saw? Do you get why the darkness had no impact on him? Because John understood that the big light had come into this world to reignite us little lights who had sacrificed ours in hopes of it. You, fam, are a shining star because of Christ Jesus, the light of the world, breathing into you the very solution that your life needs. You're the shining star. I don't even have the time to dig into what that really means for us because how the very physical nature of life mirrors the nature of the creator because light is the the absolute standard of our universe. Light is timeless even though we use it to drive our clocks. Light is infinite. And when I say infinite, I mean it's infinitely powerful. It's infinitely present. It truly contains an infinite amount of danger. Light is a trinity in multiple trinities. Uh, in multiple trinities, because it is the composition, color, and spectrum of light that each of those behaves as a trinity on top of themselves. And this is all before we get into the dual wave particle nature of light and how that blows my mind every time that I think about it. And all of that is the light of the world. And then all of that has been deposited inside of you and me so that you and I can operate both in this world and in the world to come. Because that's what Jesus prayed. Remember, John records his prayer, and he goes, these ones that you've given me, and not just the ones you've given me, but the ones that are to come, he goes, I am praying that you keep them in this world, but not touched by it. And that's what John saw. Physical light so mirrors the indescribable nature of our creator that to this day, we human beings who have studied it constantly have barely scratched the surface of what it truly means to our existence. And similarly, we little lights, no matter how much time we spend in the big lights path, have barely scratched the surface of what it means to be the light of the world. 
Because even as the creator empowers physical light to disperse physical darkness, he empowers you and I, his little lights, to operate in a dark world unaffected by its taint. Because the root of all the amazing properties is that the full value of light can only be seen in the darkness. Without darkness, there is no light. The value of light is only useful in the dark. You don't turn on your flashlight in broad daylight. You turn on your flashlight in the middle of the night when you need to see something. And he left you and I in the world because light is fading from this world with the, with the ascension of Christ. And night is eventually coming. But it ain't here yet. But the lingering resonance of the light of the world is fading from our world and we know it. But it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Because he intentionally left us here to shine for him. As Peter wrote, that you are a chosen priest chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession to proclaim the virtues of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. (laughs) Not my lane or orbit. (laughs) And as the folks over at Lightworkers penned in their thoughts about the simple complexity of that song, that opened our examination today. When affirming the God-breathed dignity that flickers within every one of us, this little light of mine becomes so much more than a camp song. It becomes gospel truth. Shine that complexly simple truth, fam. That's all he wants you to do.